bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. We got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. He doesn't have a bipartisan bill. Nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is the first Tax Credit Tuesday of 2014. Today is Tuesday, January 7th, 2014. I'd like to welcome you all back from what I hope was an enjoyable holiday season spent with friends and family. I'll start this week's podcast with the latest on the fiscal year 2014 budget, a potential change in the Senate Finance Committee leadership, and a new report about the success of community development financing tools. In our historic tax credit segment, I'll discuss the long-awaited safe harbor guidance for the Internal Revenue Service. That's right, it's finally here. I also discuss a prototype programmatic agreement from the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, Rhode Island's newest historic tax credit awardees, and the Rural Heritage Conservation Act of 2013. In this week's New Markets Tax Credit section, I have information from the Community Development Financial Institution Fund's latest Qualified Equity Investment Issues Report. Also information on a study about how new market tax credits could be used to help in obesity and about a bill that would qualify more census tracts for new markets tax credits. Then, in our low-income housing tax credit discussion, I share information about income-qualified households that appeared in low-income housing credit newsletter number 54. I also have information on a report from the Corporation for Supportive Housing regarding allocation policies that promote supportive housing production. Finally, in Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, I discuss a proposal from Senator Max Baucus that would consolidate all existing Renewable Energy Tax Credits into two tax credits. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I have an update on the fiscal year 2014 budget. President Barack Obama signed the bipartisan budget bill the day after Christmas. That bill set the overall budget for fiscal year 2014, but it did not set the spending limits for individual programs. Those must be set by the appropriations committees. The appropriations committees have until January 15th to agree on spending levels. If they do not, Congress will have to pass another continuing resolution. Otherwise, the government could shut down again. You can expect a lot of fast and furious information in the general press on the status of these discussions in the coming week. Of a more specific nature, I'll keep you posted on the latest news as it relates to affordable housing, community development, renewable energy, and historic preservation via Twitter and an update in next week's and subsequent podcasts. In other news, and news that came as a bit of a surprise, Senator Max Baucus could be leaving his chairman's post at the Senate Finance Committee a little earlier than expected. In late December, President Barack Obama nominated Senator Baucus to be the next U.S. ambassador to China. If Senator Baucus is confirmed as the ambassador, then Senator Ron Wyden is widely expected to become head of the Senate Finance Committee. Senator Wyden is a Democrat from Oregon, 
He's been serving in the Senate since 1996, and he's currently chairman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. He also chairs the Senate Finance Subcommittee on International Trade, Customs, and Global Competitiveness. He's also a member of the Joint Committee on Taxation. Other Senate committees he serves on, Budging, Aging, and Intelligence Committees. In a December 20th press release about Senator Baucus's nomination, Senator Wyden said that he was looking forward to, and I quote, updating the nation's tax system with a focus on growth, fairness, and efficiency, and ensuring that fiscal policy supports keeping jobs here in America. Close quote. Montana Governor Steve Bullock would appoint a replacement to finish Baucus's term. That term runs through the end of 2014. Now, it's rumored that Governor Bullock may appoint his Lieutenant Governor John Walsh. John Walsh is a Democrat. I'll keep you updated on any developments via my Twitter account and in future podcasts. In other general news, the National Development Council in December released a white paper on the effectiveness of six federal community development financing tools. The report is titled Beyond Housing, Neighborhoods, and Jobs, How Federal Economic Development Tools Pay Back the Government. The report covers several programs of interest to tax credit Tuesday listeners, notably the New Market Tax Credit and the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. The report uses government financial data and information from NDC's portfolio of projects that use the programs. NDC found that eliminating or reducing funding for the programs would cost the nation thousands of full-time private sector jobs. The result would be that tax revenue and community benefits generated by the jobs will be lost. It also said that hundreds of thousands of units of affordable housing would be lost. The report highlighted a few of the benefits of each program. I'd like to share a couple of those statistics with you. Between 2009 and 2011, the New Markets Tax Credit financed 1,500 businesses and generated more than 200,000 jobs. During that same period, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit financed more than 200,000 housing units and generated more than 262,000 construction and permanent jobs. NDC released the white paper in conjunction with its launch of the Advocating for Communities Together effort, or ACT. NDC launched ACT to advocate for tax incentive programs as Congress works on reforming the tax code. The website includes an email template that supporters of the New Market Tax Credit and Locomizing Tax Credit can use to send to their senators. You can access the letters via the NDC website. You can find that at www.nationaldevelopmentcouncil.org. If you'd like to review the report, you can find a copy on the Reports and Research page at both the Affordable Housing Research Center and the New Markets Tax Credit Research Center on the Novogratic website. In historic tax credit news, I start with the long-awaited Safe Harbor guidance. The Internal Revenue Service on December 30th issued Safe Harbor guidance for historic tax credit transactions. As regular listeners know, we have been anticipating this clarification since the August 2012, yes, back in 2012, Third Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that found in the historic boardwalk hall case that the historic tax credit investor was not a partner in the partnership that was entitled to the tax credits. 
Since then, industry participants have been asking the IRS to provide safe harbor guidance for historic tax credit investors and developers. Well, the wait is over. Revenue Procedure 2014-12 establishes safe harbor requirements under which the IRS will not challenge partnership allocations of Section 47 historical rehabilitation tax credits by a partnership to its partners. This safe harbor guidance is intended to provide more predictability to partners and partnerships about the allocation of tax credits to partners who are joining and rehabilitating qualified buildings. The safe harbor applies to developer partnerships and master tenant partnerships. The RevProc has eight categories of rules that determine one's eligibility for the safe harbor. It also provides some examples to illustrate the rules. The eight categories of rules relate to the following. One, definition of qualifying partners. Two, allowable terms of partnership interests. Three, investor minimum required unconditional contribution amounts. Four, allowable contingent consideration. Five, permissible and impermissible guarantees and loans. Six, allowable purchase rights and sale rights. Seven, the requirement that the allocation of rehabilitation tax credits satisfy Section 74B. That's the partnership allocation regulation. And definition of related parties. Some of the specific requirements are that the principal must have at least a 1% interest in each material item of partnership, income gain, loss, deduction, and credit at all times during the existence of the partnership. The investor must have at least a 5% interest in partnership, income gain, loss, deduction, and credit at all times during the existence of the partnership. And at least 75% of the investor's capital contributions must be fixed in amount before the building is placed in service. The IRS stressed that the revenue procedure is not meant to provide substantive rules. The IRS said it would not provide private letter rulings to individual taxpayers regarding the allocation of historic tax credits. It should also be noted that the safe harbor only applies to historic tax credit transactions, although it could affect transactions that use a combination of historic tax credits and other federal or state tax credits, as well as other tax credit programs will be looking at this revenue proc to see what impact it might have on structuring transactions without historic tax credits. Now, the safe harbor applies to properties placed in service after December 31, 2013. This means that it applies to partnerships negotiated and signed before the safe harbor guidance was issued so long as the properties have not yet been placed in service. While I noted earlier that the wait is over, the interpretation of the safe harbor is only just beginning. To aid in this ongoing interpretive effort, the Overgrading Company will be hosting a webinar on this guidance later in the month. It's currently scheduled for January 29th. Look for an email with registration information soon. If you want to be sure you're notified of the webinar, go and sign up for our free email alerts at www.novoco.com. In other historic tax credit news, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation has designated a prototype programmatic agreement that's designed to help 
the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, develop state-based agreement documents that will comply with Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act. Now, the purpose of this prototype agreement is twofold. One, to enhance consistency in the review process across federal agencies. And two, to help agencies leverage their resources to preserve historic structures in the aftermath of natural disasters, natural disasters like Superstorm Sandy. Section 106 says that all federal agencies must take into account the effects their actions have on historic properties. The Advisory Council and FEMA agreed that implementing the agreement would minimize delays to FEMA's disaster recovery efforts. This programmatic approach also stipulates the roles and responsibilities of participants. It exempts some undertakings from Section 106 review, where appropriate. It establishes protocols for consultation with stakeholders, helps with identification and evaluation of historic properties, and it expedites the assessment and resolution of adverse effects on such properties. FEMA may also use the agreement to negotiate state-based agreements. This provides opportunities for states to tailor the agreement in areas specific to issues that apply to that particular state. To learn more about the agreement, go to www.achp.gov. And to learn more about your state's historic tax credit, go to www.historictaxcredits.com. Turning to state-level news, the Rhode Island Division of Taxation last month released the names of 27 State Historic Tax Credit awardees. Sixteen of the projects are in the state capital of Providence, and awardees included the Providence Journal's downtown headquarters, as well as factories, mills, and an elementary school. As you may know, Rhode Island reinstated its historic tax credit program for commercial redevelopments in 2013. The Rhode Island General Assembly allocated $34.5 million in abandoned credits to new projects. Under the state program, applicants could receive up to 25% of qualified rehab expenditures as credits, and projects were capped at $5 million in credits apiece. Last fall, 31 applicants were awarded tax reservations through the lottery process. Only 27 applicants, however, fulfilled the requirements necessary to keep their tax credit reservations. For more information about Rhode Island's Historic Tax Credit Program, please go to www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you have any questions about historic tax credits in your state, I encourage you to call my partner, Tom Bosha, in our Cleveland, Ohio office. I'd also like to share an update on the Rural Heritage Conservation Act of 2013. It's also known as Senate Bill 526. The legislation gained three co-sponsors in December. Senator Mark Begich from Alaska, Senator Thad Cochran from Mississippi, and Senator Carl Levin from Michigan. That brings the number of co-sponsors up to 17 senators at the time of this recording. Now, for those of you not familiar with Senate Bill 526, here's a quick summary. The legislation proposes extending certain enhanced tax incentives for conservation easements. Now, in many cases, or maybe I should say some cases, conservation easements are used in connection with historic tax credit properties. These enhanced incentives, though, expired as of December 31, 2013. On that day, the deduction limit reverted to 30% of a taxpayer's adjusted gross income. 
If passed, Senate Bill 526 would permanently allow individual taxpayers to claim conservation easements in a given year of up to 50% of their adjusted gross income. The bill would also permanently allow corporations to claim deductions in excess of 10% of their taxable income. As always, I'll keep you updated on the bill's progress and share any news as it develops. You can find a copy of the bill at www.historictaxcredits.com. In new market tax credit news, the City of Five Fund released its monthly Qualified Equity Investment Issues Report last week. Among other things, the report identifies new market tax credit allocatees, the allocation amount received by each entity, the total dollar amount finalized, and the amount remaining to be issued. According to the latest issues report, more than $2.7 billion of qualified equity investments, or QEIs, were finalized last month. That's $2.7 billion with a B. This large amount of QEIs finalized in December is most likely influenced by the fact that community development entities had to meet QEI minimum thresholds by December 31st if they had applied for allocation in 2013. This leaves about $1.5 billion in new market tax credit authority that hasn't been finalized yet. Although, as I've said before, much of that has already been committed to projects. If you're searching for an allocation or need help closing a transaction, though, I do encourage you to contact one of my partners. Annette Stevenson in our Cleveland, Ohio office, Owen Gray in our San Francisco office, or another partner in the Novogratic office near you. A copy of the latest QEI issuance report is available at www.newmarketscredits.com. In other new market tax credit news, the Campaign to End Obesity last month released a report about how the new market tax credit can promote healthy food choices and lifestyles in low-income neighborhoods. It's titled The New Market Tax Credit, Opportunities for Investment in Healthy Foods and Physical Activity. The report found that the NMTC is effective in building supermarkets and physical recreation facilities in low-income areas. It said greater access to these types of projects could improve overall health for people in these neighborhoods. About 49 supermarkets and grocers were financed by the New Market Tax Credit between 2003 and 2010. These projects improved healthy food access for 345,000 people. That includes 197,000 children. Most of these projects were built in counties with adult obesity rates higher than the national average. Furthermore, supermarkets funded by the New Market Tax Credit have a distinct advantage over typical supermarkets in low-income areas. A case study showed that a New Market Tax Credit-funded supermarket could support itself with only 89% of the sales needed to support a typical supermarket. The report said that this allows supermarkets to survive in low-income neighborhoods that stores might otherwise dismiss as unprofitable. Still, grocery stores represent less than 2% of total new market tax allocations between 2003 and 2010. And NMTC funding for recreation and fitness facilities was even more limited. Only seven projects focused on recreation and fitness. The report identified some programmatic challenges to building new market tax credit projects focused on healthy food and recreation. For instance, higher transaction costs that are especially difficult for smaller projects to bear, difficulty in underwriting the types of capital assets typical for small grocery store projects, as well as a lack of clarity in project evaluation criteria. 
The Campaign to End Obesity made no specific recommendations in the report, but it did suggest that changes to the New Market Task Program may be needed to target grocery store and recreational facilities more directly. You can find a copy of the report at www.newmarketscredits.com. And finally, in New Market Test News, Congressman Jim Costa introduced a bill in December that would increase the number of census tracts that qualify as low-income communities under the New Market Tax Credit Program. If passed, H.R. 3809 would make a census tract eligible for the New Market Tax Credit if it's adjacent to two or more low-income communities and if the Treasury Secretary does not have information indicating that the tract is not a low-income community. H.R. 3809 has been referred to the House Committee on Ways and Means. You can find a copy of the bill at www.newmarketscredits.com. In low-income housing tax credit news, I'd like to discuss the latest edition of the Internal Revenue Service's Low-Income Housing Credit Newsletter. Recently, Grace Robertson released LHC Newsletter Number 54. Grace Robertson is at the IRS, and she issues these newsletters a few times a year. She's an excellent resource for insight as to how IRS auditors are viewing various housing tax credit issues. Issue 54 covers a number of topics related to income qualifications for low-income housing tax credit properties. These include discussions of how to calculate income for individuals eligible for low-income housing tax credit properties, as well as how calculating income to qualify for these properties is different than calculating income for federal income tax purposes. The newsletter specifically addresses points from Chapter 5 of the HUD Housing and Urban Development Handbook 4350-3. Points such as third-party verification, state agency requirements, IRS Section 42 requirements, and other low-income tax credit program requirements, and it uses, does this in a Q&A format. If you'd like to learn more about these issues, as well as enjoy the latest Grace Notes, you can visit www.taxcredithousing.com. You can also find past issues of the LHC newsletter there as well. In other low-income tax credit news, the Corporation for Supportive Housing, CSH, released a report titled Housing Credit Policies in 2013 that Promote Supportive Housing. The report reviewed 56 Qualified Allocation Plans, or QAPs, from 2013. It also summarizes the supported housing policies in each QAP. For those who may not be that familiar with the details of the awarding of loan housing tax credits, housing finance agencies use QAPs to award tax credits to applicants. The report identifies a variety of loan housing tax credit targeting approaches used in various QAPs. Targeting approaches studied include threshold requirements, credit set-asides, and scoring or points incentives. CSH noted three policy trends. An increasing number of housing finance agencies require or incentivize coordination with public housing authorities, or PHAs, for funding or waiting lists. Agencies are providing incentives to preservation projects in their QAPs. And more agencies are promoting mixed developments that incorporate both supportive and affordable housing units. CSH found that 53 out of 56 housing credit agencies provide potential scoring advantages for supportive housing. 45 housing credit agencies 
provide scoring incentives that encourage permanent supportive housing, special needs housing, and housing for people with disabilities. This is, by the way, an increase from 2012. Now here are a few examples of QAPs that now include scoring incentives for supportive housing. Georgia added a scoring incentive for serving at-risk populations. Mississippi added a scoring incentive for serving persons with disabilities. And Oregon added a scoring incentive for development serving special needs populations and for developments that provide permanent supportive housing. Finally, I'd like to note that CSH listed five universal policies that create a positive incentive for construction of supportive housing. They are statutory requirements to consider special needs populations and allocating credits, statutory priorities for serving very low-income tenants, market study requirements to document need for targeted populations, incentives for development proximity to community services, and incentives for development amenities, such as common space. To read the report, I encourage you to go to www.csh.org. I begin the Renewable Energy Tax Credit news with an update on the production tax credit. At the time of this recording, the tax credit has expired. Projects that have not begun construction by December 31st can no longer qualify for the tax credit. Now, there is strong support for an extension of the production tax credit, and it's possible, maybe even likely, that any such extension would be retroactive. I'll update you in future podcasts about any legislation that might extend the production tax credit program. Now, speaking of the production tax credit, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus last month unveiled a tax reform discussion draft that proposes eliminating the current renewable energy production tax credit and investment tax credit. Under the proposal, all, or almost all, energy tax incentives would be consolidated under two new technology-neutral tax credits. There would be one for clean energy, the clean energy tax credit, and one for clean transportation fuel, the clean transportation fuel tax credit. Projects that qualify for the production tax credit and investment tax credit would fall under the proposed clean electricity incentive after 2016. The clean electricity incentive would be available as either a production credit of 2.3 cents per kilowatt hour or an investment tax credit of up to 20%. Now, I should note that the two new tax credits would be long-term but would not be permanent. The new tax credits would be phased out once the country's greenhouse gas intensity levels were 25% reduced, 25% below that of 2013. So instead of keeping an eye on program sunset dates, energy tax credit investors and developers would need to monitor greenhouse gas levels. When Senator Baucus released the proposal, he said, and I quote, our current set of energy tax incentives is overly complex and picks winners and losers with no clear policy rationale, close quote. He went on to say that we need energy incentives that are more predictable, rational, and technology neutral. According to the same press release, there are about 42 different energy tax incentives. That includes 25 temporary incentives that expire every year or two. If Congress continues to extend current incentives, 
It'll cost nearly $150 billion over 10 years, according to the press release. Senator Baucus has requested feedback on the discussion draft from Congress, stakeholders, and the public. You can submit comments to tax underline reform at finance.senate.gov before January 31, 2014. A copy of the Energy Tax Reform Discussion Draft can be found at www.energytaxcredits.com. And if you have any specific comments yourself, shoot us an email at cpas.novaco.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. I'd also like to encourage you to join me in Miami later this week for the Novogratic Tax Credit Developers Conference. This conference will feature panels of experts and discussions about the latest logarithmic tax credit developments. The Journal of Tax Credit will also be awarding Developments of Distinction Awards to some deserving properties. Just visit www.novico.com events to check out the conference. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.